Welcome to the Coop Tank. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, coming from you from the Towncast Studios in beautiful Mount Laurel, New Jersey. You know, people, if you have a video cast or a podcast or want to do a voiceover or read an audio book, come to Towncast Studios. Not only do Joe and Matt know what they're doing, but they're great at it and they're really easy to work with. So go to towncaststudios.com or email them at info at towncaststudios.com. Anyway, we have, a, we have a great show today. Uh, it's funny, my guest, she, I knew her on Facebook because we had a lot of comic friends. We did comedy, and she actually thought she met me at a comedy show years ago, but she, we found out she didn't because I was already on the West Coast. But then I finally met her in person at the Alarm concert at the Keswick Theater. And she's, uh, she does comedy. She uh, she's, does a lot of speaking, and she has her own company, which deals with that hi-fi performance. And my guest is Teresa Crowlinger, or known in the uh, comedy world as Teresa HK. That's it. That's it. Steve, thank you for having me. This is awesome. Well, I, okay. So I, I want to know about hi-fi performance. Tell me about it. because you, you, And I want to I get to your comedy and how you got there. But tell me about what exactly hi-fi performance is. Yeah, so hi-fi performance, I can't believe it's 20 years old, but it is over 20 years old. Uh, I work with leaders in organizations to help create awesome culture, uh, which, as you can imagine right now, I am very busy. This is a hot topic right now. So how do you create awesome culture? First of all, great leadership, managers that know what they're doing and are awesome, and then really strong attention to core values and a strong mission statement and really living those core values and a mission. Um, I can't believe I get paid to do this because it is beautiful work. It is amazing work. Well, what are some of the issues you're running into now? Because, I mean, I just talked to someone yesterday about who is a lawyer for, you know, issues in the workplace. And, and I come, I used to work in a restaurant. I did marketing. And, and that's like the sleaziest business ever. Like the <laughs> managers would sit there and be like, giving waitresses massages. And I'm like, dude, you can't do that. And they wouldn't get it. I mean, what kind of issues have you run into in the last few years? Oh, my gosh. I don't even know where to begin. Well, I will say this. Because of the pandemic, businesses are faced with some really unique issues now that they did not have before. Uh, a big topic is work from home or work remotely or work in the office. And a lot of office type jobs, um, this is a hot, hot topic. You have people that are adamant now, they wanna work remotely. You have some leaders that are adamant, they want people in the office, that's where you should be. So that is a big, big topic. Uh, another topic, because people had time to think, to reflect, can you imagine that? They had time to think. They started to think about what really mattered to them. And they started to appreciate things like being home to have breakfast with their children and see them off to school, uh, spending time with their pet, um, eating healthier food because you're actually eating at home so you're going to the grocery store and you're buying nice things to eat. So all of these things gave people pause and because of that, their expectations at work are different. And everybody is coming to terms with this. Now, for you, in, in what you do, how would you deal with someone, a boss, who is very resistant to that? I mean, who calls you in? Does, does corporate call you in and say, you know what, we have this idiot who's not doing stuff and he's causing a big, you know, cluster F. I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you get 
get called in and then how do you resolve it? I mean, it must be hard because if someone, if someone, my feeling is if someone is going to sit there and, you know, my wife worked for a boss like that, they just, they, they have such an ego. And so when they get called in like, oh, wait, you called HR. Oh, what is this? How do you, first of all, who calls you? And then how do you deal with that ego that you probably run into a lot? Yeah, it's interesting. So I'm typically brought into organizations for something very light, Um, team building, right? Uh, Helping teams understand each other better and work well together. Uh, Difficult conversations. I'll come in and do a a one-day workshop. But what happens is I start to form relationships with those organizations who brought me in to do the thing that was really rather light. And that's when I start to get the calls you're talking about where, Teresa, we have a really difficult situation. We have a manager that really needs some coaching. We have a leader that is struggling with an issue. We'd like to enlist your your help with that. Uh, and leaders, to your point, it, sometimes there's a lot of ego. Sometimes they're very stuck in their ways. And let's face it, they got to the top for a reason. They're probably pretty darn smart right? They're probably pretty darn connected. So there's a reason they got to where they are. And they usually feel pretty good about themselves. But when things start to rattle things at work, they often, they don't know what path to take. They don't know what path to take. Here's what I have found. If a leader is in pain, and when I say is in pain, there's a problem that just, they cannot solve it. It keeps raising its ugly head. Or there's just yeah, something that's been going on a really long time. That pain is what drives the change. And it actually makes my job easier. Because I'll say, look at, look at the pattern here. There's something that's been going on for a long time. You don't want to be kept up at night about this anymore. Now, if there's no pain, so if people aren't leaving, there's no issues in the office, they're not going to change pain drives change. So in a way, their pain is my friend because it enables me to get them on a better path. But if they're not feeling pain, they're not going to change. Now, you said it's been 20 years since you've had this business. And it's funny, you know, I always say it's a small world. I know on Facebook one time, I think Rob Wines, yes. uh, a guy I went to Stockton with. And I, I it's funny, I I, he saw me at the Comedy Factory outlet years ago when I first, he's like, if I ever hear your name in the morning zoo, me and my friends are coming. And the morning zoo used to do it. And I saw you had um, commented on it. And I was like, how do you know each other? And yes. now you worked in the financial world with him, right? Or what did yeah. you do with him? So, so my first real job out of school was Prudential. And what a wonderful place to work. I mean, it is the gift that keeps on giving. I left there at the end of 2001, and I, I still use things that I learned at Pru. So Rob and I work together at Prudential. So uh, as I feel like there's always like two degrees of Prudential. It's such a big company. Everybody either knows somebody that works there or knows somebody that knows somebody that worked there. But yeah, Rob, he's an awesome guy. So you, you got out of college. What was your major? Believe it or not, biology and chemistry. I was a science major. My thought was I was pre-med. I also thought um, Merck is five minutes from my house. And the people who worked at Merck, I mean, I'm a young kid. I'm looking around. People who worked at Merck look like they had a pretty good life. So I thought, you know, biology and chemistry. I also knew, and I this is really going back, doctors used to have offices in their house. I don't know if you remember this, Steve. but there, And we had two local doctors, and they were both getting up in years. And I looked at that, and I thought, you know, 
I could take their place. Like when they retire, I could be the neighborhood doctor, which of course we don't really have neighborhood doctors anymore. But that was my thought process with, with science. Now, I could not get into Merck at the time. Apparently, they didn't know about my life goals and did not care. It was really very rude. But my dad, and it's all about networking, my dad had a drinking buddy and a fishing buddy who worked at Prudential. And at that time, Prudential was closing a New Jersey operation and a Boston operation and bringing people to Dresher. And that's how I got in. They were mass hiring to fill these spots. And I got in at Prue. And I stayed a long time, almost 18 years. So you stay for 18 years, and are you enjoying your job? You know what? Ups and downs. But I would say for the most part, yes. Yeah. And, you know, it's all about the people. It's all about who you report to. The work itself is the work, but it's who you report to, who you're working with. So on the whole, yes. So you're there for 18 <laughs> years in Prudential. And then so now how do you decide to start Hi-Fi Performance? I mean, is it was it something that started kicking in your mind maybe – few years like maybe after year 10 like well you know eventually i want to get out of here or is there just something like you had an epiphany or something happened where you went holy shit i i i'm going to start this i mean how did you start your business because you're very successful but you had to start somewhere so how did you start because it's it's different completely different than what you did at prudential i'm guessing yeah it's in alignment with what i learned there but i wanted to do for everybody what some of the things that i learned there for one thing, performance management tends to be an incredibly painful, uh, not so efficient process. And my thought process was, I'm going to help organizations put in place a good performance management process. Um, as it turns out, I'm doing much more than that. I mean, it just evolved. But I knew about two years before I left Prue, I think I just want to go out on my own because I want to do – it's almost like um, – this sounds so weird. It's almost like a ministry of sorts. It, it's, it's tied to my soul. We spend so much time at work, all of us, whatever it is that we do. And I really want people to find meaning and purpose and joy in work. And that is the driving force behind everything I do, helping leaders be better leaders, one, so they're happier, two, so their people are happier. It's all about that. So about two years before I left, I was thinking about um, going out on my own. Now, I was very fortunate. Well, some people didn't think it was fortunate, but I thought it was fortunate. There was a reorganization, and that reorganization eliminated the department I was in in Dresher. So that moved to North Jersey. I could have moved to North Jersey if I wanted to. I chose not to. I got a nice package, and that's how I started my business. So how do you start it? I mean, you know, how do you sit there and start this plan because I mean you know most people now haven't been with a job and you were in Prudential for a long time yeah. people now have jobs you know five years ten years because everyone just gets bored I think that's what it is we just get bored and it's not like you know unless you have a big ass pension you know people are saying oh, right. unless you're a police Rare. officer or a teacher or, or whatever you know you yeah. do that but so how do you start your business you get this package the severance package but then you know whenever you get money you're worried like how long right. is it going to last? How's this going to go? Yeah. So, how did you decide to start your business, and where? Like, what was step one that made you that was to start this successful business? Before I left, I focused on my network. So, if that makes any sense. So, while I'm still at Prudential, when you work for a large company, particularly a really good organization like Prudential, it's very easy to be. It's very insular. So, your network is your. It's your colleagues. 
But I was very purposeful the last few years I was there. I joined Toastmasters. I became president of Toastmasters. I joined uh, Association for Talent Development. I became president of Association for Talent Development locally. And I was building my network of people who know other people or who might bring me in to do work. So I purposely worked on my network and also building my external skills. Did that for a couple years. So by the time the reorganization happened, I was well prepared for it. Yeah. But the networking is key because people have to know who you are for you to get hired. Right. Now, <clears throat> how do you start getting, do you remember your first job you got when you left the uh, company? Because I always ask this. Way, oh my it, gosh, yes. Tell me, because I always do this whenever, well, whenever I interview celeb, uh, musicians on Cooper Talk, I always ask them, do you remember the first time you heard your song on the radio? And they almost all do. And I ask people, do you remember your first client when you went out on your yeah. own? Yeah. Well, what's funny is my first client was Prudential. And that's no surprise, right? Because I had already built a strong brand with my colleagues there. So when I was gone, and it wasn't like I was fired, it was a reorganization, so I left you know, on good terms. There were some friends of mine in Newark, and they said, you know what, we have a challenging situation here. Are you open to doing some coaching? So that was my very first job after leaving. And then I actually did work with Prudential probably for two or three years after I left. I had a summer that I worked on a project. They had acquired a company in Connecticut and merging those cultures together, as you can imagine, is quite a challenge. So I worked with them on that for a summer. And I remember that was like the most money I made outside of Peru. I remember making that money and asking my accountant, what, what do I do with this? And she's like, well, do you need anything? I don't know. I, I was so naive. I'm like, what would I need? She goes, do you need a car? And I was like, I can buy a car with this money? Yeah, you can. And so I, I didn't know a lot about, you know, owning a business and all, but I knew the work I did really well. So, and I remember buying a beautiful brand new, um, it was a, like a charcoal gray BMW and feeling like the richest girl in the world. I'm like, look at me driving this. So you're, you're getting these 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 uh, clients and you're starting to make money. You got the charcoal BMW. Got the charcoal BMW, When, when man. I got out of college, I, my first car was a uh, Pontiac Fiero. Oh, it's nice. A, yeah, metallic maroon. And I was selling fax machines. And I would have sold copiers, but my car was too small to put a copier in there so I could fit a fax. But so you get out and you have this car and you're feeling you're feeling good because yeah. you have some things. So now how do you start building your business to keep it going? Oh my gosh. And you know what? Uh, it's still working. It's still working. So I'm so happy to share this because if anybody's listening who is in business for yourself, um, and it doesn't have to be the same kind of business I do, the the whole key is building your brand. People need to get to know who you are and what you do. And if you make them feel good and you're really good at what you do and they know you do it, you will get work. For me, I started speaking at conferences, speaking at chambers of commerce. Anybody who would give me a platform, I, I spoke for free because I just wanted to get out there. I wanted them to know, oh, my God, remember that lady? She was so cool. She was funny. And she had some really good points. I like her. See, just this week. I had a, a call from a, a woman who attended a conference with me, Garden State Sherm. It had to be 2018, 2019. It was a few years ago. And she said, I've never forgotten you, Teresa. I enjoyed that session so much. We have a need for management training. Can we talk? 
So that's the kind of thing, getting out there. If you can speak, grab a platform, share what you do, make people feel good about what you do, give off that vibe that people are like, I, I want to be with you. That is how I've built a business. You know what's crazy? People pay, and I, not to diss my marketing friends because they're awesome at what they do. People pay a lot of money for marketing. I don't. I don't. It's all social media presence. It's all one-on-one uh, -on -one relationships, keeping that love alive. It's speaking. That is how I've built this business. So what do you speak about? Like, like let's say, I, like, who would call you in to speak? And besides not what you speak about, but also what makes you so different? All right. So who would call me in to speak? So a lot of the human resource organizations have been reaching out for me to speak. Um, one, I have a broad knowledge of their work. Um, two, I can make them laugh. You know, which and I think that's what makes me different. Uh, stand up comedy. It, it's funny because I know you were going to get to this at some point, but I'll, I'll start to weave it in now. When I left Prudential, so it was the first time in my life I actually had some free time. Right. So at Montgomery County Community College, they had a stand up comedy course for eight weeks for eighty nine dollars. Who taught it? Paul Solari. Oh my God! Okay. Yes, just so you people, just so you don't know. Okay, <laughs> when I when I did comedy, um, Paul Solari, we referred to him as like the Broadway Danny Rose of Philadelphia because you would sit there and he'd call you for a gig and he'd go, "Hey Cooper, can you close?" And I go, "Well, what's it pay?" And he goes, "25." Yes, yeah, so he'd be like, "75 bucks." He said, "I'm not headlining for 75 bucks." <laughs> and he's like, "Well, then I'll get this person." And I go, "Yeah, but that person's doing comedy for like a year." And he was the nicest guy, but whenever yeah. you got a check, you'd be like, after a while you go, "You're paying me in cash." But uh so you took you I mean, you know, I mean, people yeah. it's funny and a very good tennis player. But he um, is. Yes. But no, he so is. so you take a class with Paul Solari, who by the way, used to come up with a guitar. It was all awful on stage. <laughs> awful on stage. Which but they say those who can't do teach. So so okay, so you take the class with so, Solari. So I take the class. So my intention was not to become a comedian. Because to me, that was I don't know, like far fetched almost. Like, wow, that that's like quote unquote not who I am, right? So I take this eight-week course. And I got to be honest with you, it's hard work. And anybody who's a comic knows writing, refining, uh, if you do it right, is there's a discipline, there's a rigor, it's, it's work. So we started this class with 20 people. We ended with nine who graduated. And it's because it's, it is hard. There is a rigor to it. So we have a graduation show. You've now worked for weeks to write five to seven minutes of material. Weeks. You get up there, and of course, the room is full. And Paul was smart because he knows all these new comedians are going to bring – your family and friends are like, holy cow, I can't even believe she's doing that. I didn't even think she was all that funny. Anyway, so they're all coming. So we have like 200 people in what is ordinarily a pool hall. We all get up and we do our five to seven minutes, and it worked out really, really well. Like people laughed, and I thought this is amazing. So then I sign up for his advanced comedy course so I can build because you want to have 15 minutes. If you have 15 minutes of comedy, you can emcee a show. That's pretty much all you need. If you have 15 minutes and decent platform skills, you can emcee. So that's how the whole thing started. All this to say – that has been a huge differentiator for me, particularly in the human resource world, because in HR, it's, it's serious. You know, it, it, it's just serious work to be able to come in and, one, get them, because I get them because I'm one of them, 
and to be able to laugh at our work and laugh at ourselves and laugh at situations. And we do have some crazy situations that we face. Um, that is a huge differentiator. Well, I, I see as I see as a differentiator, but I would think it must, well, first of all, when, when you're gonna craft a presentation to an HR company, it must be one thing. And then I always say like with writing comedy, to write stupid jokes is very hard because you have to think of that level. I had friends who wrote for kids' TV shows, which is very hard because yeah. you're at that level. But for you, it must be, do you find it challenging for the fact that you have to make humor with HR, but you can't cross a line yes. because it's HR? So how do you sit, do you, do you sit down there and just brainstorm, I'll do this, and then go, oh crap, I, I can't write that, I can't say that because then I'm infringing on what HR is. I mean, how do you formulate that to be funny for HR people without going over that line where you're infiltrating what right. is bad bad behavior? It's Well, it's all good judgment. And I would say 10% of the funny is planned and 90% is in the moment. But that's where good judgment comes in because you don't wanna get a laugh and cross a line. So there's a lot of quick thinking in my head, like, oh, based on that question she asked, I got a really funny thing to come back with. And there's that whole process of, yes, it's funny. Could anybody be offended? Is it worth saying it? Think all of that in seconds. But yeah, I usually don't plan a lot of humor, although I have stories that I weave in that are planned and they are funny. So when you speak, is it usually like an hour? I mean, or, I mean, how long how long does the company bring you in for? And and in that speaking, how much is actually prepared on the subject? How much is actually weaving in your humor? And how much is actually ad living? Because you know, as a comic, you can riff, and and a lot of times, also, it sounds like we're thinking off the top of our head. Right. It's it's, it's already yeah written, the whole crowd you know. work. Yeah. So how how like what? Someone comes to see you. What can they expect? Like they come to see, you know, let's say I'm working for a company. And they go, hey, we have we have Teresa coming in. What what do people expect? Like, do you always have like the same opening, or do you craft everything differently for each client? Everything is different. So um, I usually try to open with something that is attention getting. Right. Sometimes I'll open with, oh, if you're happy and you know, clap your hands. And people are sheepish and wide eyed, and they're like. Because they're not expecting. And then I say, just checking. Because they weren't expecting it. It's That's a little way to kind of break the ice. I was speaking in Las Vegas this time last year. Um, so we had, oh, I don't even know, 8,000 people at this conference. It was a big conference. And I was at 4 o'clock on Friday in Las Vegas. 4 o'clock on Friday in Las Vegas. I thought, how did this even happen? And I thought to myself... Do I open with comedy? Because I had I was I had planned to talk to them about organizational culture, things that you can do, and the role that HR plays in culture. So I have so I have what I call guideposts. So my outline has these guideposts. As long as I hit the guideposts, I'm good. But there's no script per se, right? So I'm thinking, do I open with comedy? I thought, you know what? Damn it, I'm opening with comedy. So I came out. I said, here we are at 4 o'clock on a Friday afternoon in Las Vegas. I am the only thing standing between you and a drink and dinner and gambling and a show. Does anybody want to do a little comedy? Are you okay with that? Well, you know. They're like, oh. I, uh. So I have a whole five minutes on COVID that I've written because there was a lot of funny stuff about COVID despite that it was sad and it was awful and 
there's shit you can make fun of. Can I say shit on this show? Well, you just did twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can say whatever you want. You can drop an F bomb. But it's all right. But but I so I just I did the comedy. I and because it's a serious con- conference, the fact that somebody had five solid minutes of boom, 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 it was amazing. It really didn't matter what I did after that because they were like, oh, I so needed this release. So so sometimes I just do stuff on the fly. Um, I also change on the fly as I see my audience, much as we do in comedy. You're, you're saying, like, hey, you know what? This was winning the love. This isn't winning the love. Let me take a different path here. This is weird. I'll get woo-woo on you. Anytime before I get on stage, I have a moment of just quiet. And I'm prepared for what I'm about to do. But I always feel there is, like, this divine thing that flows through me and I just trust it and I just take that and ride that wave so that's a little a little woo woo but I think that moment of clarity of just turning it over and saying look I've prepared now I'm going to trust that you'll take me where I need to go whatever that higher thing is and when I do that it's amazing. It's magical. Well, what do you do if they're not buying it? Because for comedy, if they're not buying it, you can you can go into the crowd. You can do crowd work. You could do an old stock joke, which I still I have nothing against because you know some people like you know tell jokes hysterically. But you you have those things because it's comedy and it's anything goes. And no one's gonna be like, oh my god, he really he said that word. You know, for yeah. you, what do you do? I mean, because there has to be gigs where the crowd just sucks. I mean, you know, like let's yeah. say it's a bunch of accountants. And they're all like, oh, hey, you know, you know, I mean, you know, what yeah. do you what do you do? Do you do you shift gears? Or you just say, I'm going to plow through this and I'm going to get it done. I think you have to acknowledge it. Um, I acknowledge it. I smile and I laugh and I say, wow, gang, the love is here. And I point low. The love is here. We're going to have to kick this up a notch. We're going to kick this up. And the fact that you acknowledge that the love is low always makes them laugh because they're like, yeah, she, she's feeling it too. And sometimes I'll just have a conversation. What's going on? Let's park this PowerPoint presentation for a minute. What's going on, gang? Well, you, you just said this, and we've been through a lot of this lately. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so glad you brought this up. Let's talk about that, and then we'll come back to the presentation. But I think you have to acknowledge it. Any good speaker should acknowledge it, but not in a nervous way like, oh, my God, this isn't working. I'm so – it's – Hey, this is where we are. Let's talk about this. And sometimes stuff's going on that day, right? There was an announcement made that they didn't expect or something just happened yesterday. Now now you've popped that top off for the release and they can say, here's what just happened. There was a big announcement. Oh, let's talk about that. Let's honor what what's on your mind. And then we can come back to this. Now, how hard was it for you to acclimate to Zoom? Because you're coming from speaking and from doing comedy, so there's an energy, and I'm sure, you know, once because you've done comedy and you work it into your speeches, you, you get that same energy in your room. And then all of a sudden, the pandemic happens, and you have to be on Zoom, and you have yeah. to do your presentation on Zoom. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure you can't, I mean, it must be hard to do a PowerPoint in Zoom because all of a sudden it pops up. It's not you sitting there going, hey, look at this. It's 
you know, could I share PowerPoint the screen? In, yeah. the, in the upper right. So, yeah. yeah. So, so how did you acclimate to that? Did you just sit uh, there? Did it was the first time really <clears> tough, <throat> or or did you sit there and or do you still not like it? As much? I got to be honest with you. I am really blessed because I do a lot of international work. So before the pandemic, I was used to having to do classes, and I'm talking three three and a half hour programs, not just you know an hour. Three three and a half hour programs in a virtual video setting. Uh, I do work for a large pharmaceutical company that has uh, folks that work in Shanghai, Beijing. So they're not sending me there. We do 10 o'clock at night, log in. So I had to learn everything you do in a classroom, you can do on Zoom. Uh, You have to keep things moving faster on Zoom or people will tune out. So I learned, so flip charts. So when you're in a classroom, people are up there with the marker with the flip chart. There's a whiteboard. So you can pull up a whiteboard, you can take notes, and you can tell them, go ahead and print that out if you want. You can save the whiteboard. Um, Handouts, right? So if I'm in a classroom with you, I give you a handout. Now I save my handouts to Google Drive. So I copy and paste a link. Okay, our next handout is there. Is everyone able to download it? Okay. But the thing to keep in mind when you're presenting virtually is keep it moving. Ask a question, breakout, handout, uh, game. Like you have to keep it moving. So so I was blessed. I had already been using this stuff and had, I won't say mastered it, but was good. And now I'll go toe-to-toe with anybody on Zoom. I, I, I love Zoom. I love it, I hate to say this, as much as in being in person, but in different ways. Well, it's great because you don't, you know, I mean, like, well, I want to talk to you about networking, but it's like, for me, it was great because I met so many people during the pandemic because I'm not going to drive an hour to meet someone for coffee that I don't think I'm going to get business from. It's nothing, you know, they, they may know people. I know that, I mean, right. we both network. But for me, I'm like, I'm not doing that. But on on Zoom, you can go, hey, yeah, you could do like six of those things. And, and you know, a half an hour and, and you'd be so yes. productive. They'd be like, well, screw that. I'm taking the rest of the day off. But uh, that's for me, Zoom. But with networking now, because you mentioned earlier, you had built a network with Prudential when you left. But now, how do you network now? I know you're very involved with the Pyramid Club, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I'm still, I've been a member of the club for eight years, so I do networking there. Professional organizations. Um, so ATD, Association for Talent Development. There's also Learning and Development Philly, which is a nice local group for trainers. All of the SHRM groups, all of the HR groups. So Valley Forge, uh, Tri-State, which is right up the street here wonderful HR group, Garden State Sherm every year. They have an awesome conference. Um, Chamber of Commerce. So I'm actually on the Chamber of Commerce for Montgomery County in PA and love that. We do a women's conference every year coming up in October this year. Really good women's conference. Pretty much, I, I guess, when I'm invited to do things, I do them. Oh, Philadelphia Business Journal. So I have this thing called Meet the Author. And I can't believe it's eight years old, but it is eight years old. And we make Philadelphia Business Journal's best networking association list every year. We are number five, despite the pandemic. So that's networking, going so, to that event. So but what is it, me, though? You, you, I've seen you post. You facilitate that, right? I do. So what is that? I mean, and, and where did you get the idea? Because, you know, people want to meet authors. You know, they're interesting. You know, I've they interviewed are. authors for my 
for Cooper Talk, you know, like the guy who wrote uh, Silver Linings Playbook and stuff like that. And they're very fascinating because, you know, a lot of them, just like anyone, a business person, they struggle. They go through those lean times. But what made you decide to start this group? And then why do you think it's stuck? Because a lot of stuff, you know, once or most, well, yeah. first of all, it takes dedication to you because a lot of people say, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this. And then after like a few months, they go, uh, you know, no one's showing up. Screw yeah. it. But so what made you decide to do this? So I joined the Pyramid Club eight years ago, which was kind of an interesting thing because I never consider myself worthy of that kind of thing. I think I spent too many years in Catholic school. I don't know. But just even joining, I'm like, who am I to join this special place? It's so beautiful on the 52nd floor of the Mellon Building and all these fancy people. Um, then I needed to realize I'm actually quite successful myself. It's okay. I can join a place like that. So within six months of joining, I loved it. They were so good to me. I thought, how can I give something back? I know a lot of authors. I know a lot of authors. So I, I thought, let's start like a little round table. We invite an author in, we talk about their book, we can buy the book. It's a nice conversation. It evolved from being a little round table conversation to being an event every month where we have the nice big room. Pyramid Club is very gracious. They have wonderful hors d'oeuvres. Often they'll bring the bar in. People can buy wine. And the authors are great. So we did it all those years, every month, and then the pandemic, right? So we're like, oh, what are we going to do? Well, let's just take a break because we thought it's only going to be a couple months. We'll be back out. Well, it wasn't. So I moved it to Zoom. Still good. But no wine, no beautiful view. You can't buy their book and get it signed. Um, but we kept it going on Zoom. Now we're getting back in person. But what made me do it is I admire people who have the discipline and the follow through and the thought leadership to write a book. I just admire that. And my circle, much like yours with, with your talk show, your circle grows exponentially as you have these people join you for conversation. And what a blessing it is to know all these smart, cool people. Yeah, that's why I keep doing it. Now, back to your job, the high five performance. When you get booked for a gig, I mean, what does it entail? Like, you have to fly out. I mean, how do you sit there? How do you plan especially now because, you know, yeah. the way flights are, if you all of a sudden you get screwed by a flight, you're like, I'm, I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose money. Or you talk to people. How do you, would you plan? Like, I know when you went to LA, you plan to just do a week. Do you sometimes sit there and go, okay, I'm going to speak one night, but I'm going to just plan to go for five days. How do you do this? Because it's flexible and I'm sure you get paid well when you go to do your gig so you can have the time. It's not like you're sitting yes. there going, Teresa, you have to speak here, 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 like you're coming here. So how do you plan it? And are there certain plans, places where you like, you really try to focus to get a job at like oh. a certain time? Like they used to say Peter O'Toole would shoot movies. Like, oh, I know it was a shitty script, but it was it was in France and in, in whatever, you know. So how do you plan and what what is your planning like? I mean, when you plan for a trip, do you do it for you know, a vacation? I mean, how do you do this? Yeah, so most of my work is local because most of my networking has been local. But I speak at national and international conferences. So on occasion, I get work in a different state or in a different country. So to your point, yeah, I plan a few extra days because why would you not? Why would you not? So uh, in San Antonio, Texas, I have a lot of HR friends. I've been down there several times to do presentations. When they invite me, if you have not been to San Antonio, it's a lovely place. So I book a couple days ahead or a couple days after, and then I have the, the actual program. Los Angeles, you'll love this. 
This is the power of networking. My lab partner from high school, from ninth grade, Jimmy, he lives in Los Angeles. He has for years. He referred me to a nonprofit group who was looking for some teamwork, submitted a proposal, got the job. I planned a week out there, just like you said. Now, I was really only there for one day to do work, and then there was a night of uh, hors d'oeuvres and networking. But I could have flown in, flown home, done the thing. No, why would I do that? I have a bunch of friends in LA. So I set up appointments with them, met with them, had lunch, had dinner, and then I did my gig. Now, I had to spend money on the hotel, right? But my airfare was covered. Yeah, so when I travel anywhere, I usually tack on extra days. Um, the one client sends me to Belgium, um, to Basel, Switzerland. Oh, you you can be sure I schedule some extra time there to see things I would never see otherwise. Yeah. So how does your schedule look in the in the near future? Like, do you sit there, and I, I, we had talked before, you said, you know, you could work a lot more sometimes, but you don't because you choose to live, which yes. goes back to what you're speaking about, of the yes. balance of work. How do you decide, you know, what you are going to do and not? I mean, is there a thing where you look at a job and you may say, I, I don't know, or I mean, how do you, how, have you made that decision where you said, I can work and make a lot more, you know, money work 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 but you chose not to but it's not like you're it's like you're not going from making six dollars an hour to eight dollars an hour you're making money how did you make that decision to go that path because what's the point steve what's the point of having money what is first of all i think it would water down my speaking because if you're working all the time like that you're tired you're tired it's not just going for an hour I spend hours preparing for the hour, even if I've done it before. That day before a program, I'm pulling up my slides, I'm looking at my notes, and I'm looking at the context of what's going in the world now. Is there a slide that I need to include? Is there a story I need to include? Is this story old? Maybe I need to retire a story. So I'm working on it for hours before I even do the thing. And then there's follow-up. There's always follow-up. Thank you for having me. Here's some links as a follow-up. Sometimes I'll even set up coaching, and I'll throw that in. If you bring me in and we talk, everybody gets a half-hour coaching session so we can follow up with that. So, But you you cannot pack your week so much that there's no joy, that there's no rest. You just – it doesn't – and I know – I watch people doing it. I, I don't know. That's just not who I am. And I'm fine. Uh, before we go, uh, tell me about the coaching because uh, we've already getting to that. I mean, you know, you did the speaking, but do it. I mean, coaching now, you know, I always laugh. Like I see some business coaches who are like 25 and I go, what the, what the hell? You know, it's like I always make the comment, like I meet some consultants, you know, and there's yeah. there's an amazing consultants. But then there's some are like, oh, I just got tired of corporate. And I'm always like, well, maybe you sucked at corporate. Maybe, maybe. you weren't, maybe you just, you weren't good at it. And because I know people who, who ride that the ride to the golden parachute of corporate. But so yes. for coaching, how did you get involved in coaching? And, and what does that take? I mean, what, I mean, it must be, you know, what if you just coach someone who's, doesn't get it. Right, right. It's, you know, it's interesting. So in the early 2000s, coaching really started to come into its own. And there was a group called Coachville. 
And uh, I know you have to laugh. Coach Bill. <laughs> Sounds like a bad, bad TV show, know, you know, like a but, Dr. Pepper commercial. But it, it actually it was a really good way to learn coaching. Now we've got, you know, International Coaching Federation. We've got all kinds of different things. But so they had Coachville at the time. So I went through their process of learning coaching, not because I wanted coaching to be a major offering that I have, but I think it's just naturally part of what I do. The truth is I am more of an advisor than a coach. A coach kind of leads you down a path and asks you questions where you come to your own determination of what the right thing to do is. I do some of that. Ultimately, what I really do is, you know what you need to do? Here's this. Here are some thoughts. I see you have three choices here. These are the three choices. Which one looks best to you? So I'm more an advisor than a coach. But I do weave in the coaching, which is helping you think through the process. Um, and, I, and I love it. You know what I love about that most of all is getting people to see possibilities they didn't see before. People often feel stuck. And I think what I, and I know what I do is, is I get them unstuck unless they want to stay stuck. There's people who want to stay stuck. And I'll say to them, it seems to me you really don't want a solution to this problem. You're almost happy not being happy, but I'll call them on it. But, but if you want to get unstuck, you have a good coach, you have a good business advisor that shares perspective that lifts you up out of the weeds. Now, what do you see as your future in the next five, five to 10 oh, years? Wow. I don't know. I would love to just keep doing what I'm doing. Um, my life is pretty awesome. Yeah, you always have some stuff that's uh, things I need to take care of that drag on. But I got to be honest, I'm with brilliant people, interesting people. The work I do is noble. I'm paid well. I get to travel. My health is good. I hope my health stays good. Um, I think the next five years for me is just doing more of this, but maybe at a higher level. Got to get my book out there. I, as much as I love authors, my book is written and not published, and it's nobody's fault but me. It's not bullshit. You can self-publish. I know. Dude, I seriously. S- I self-published a cookbook like 10 years ago. It's not good, but I'll tell you. every. <laughs> I mean, I was. It's, it's called Stop the Salt. You can find it on Amazon, people. It's uh, Stop the Salt, low-sodium cooking for one without killing yourself. It was after I had congestive heart failure, so I had to change my whole diet. Right. But I'll tell you, it was just an accomplishment. And it's not bad, but I sit there, and every month I might get like three dollars and twelve cents in my in my checking account and I'm like holy crap this is somebody gonna, I'm gonna, book? yeah someone bought my book but so okay we'll end with that why haven't you put your book out because you're someone what how you how come you're stuck what is that bullshit it is bullshit and it's so funny and I have coaches who who say why do you think that is um because I don't make the time for it I don't make the time for it and I think it's also I created the book in create space if you remember, Amazon had CreateSpace. They have since retired CreateSpace. Yeah. And now I've moved it over to whatever that new Amazon self-publishing thing is. Um, I have not made the time and focus to, to get it done. It's an awesome book, by the way. And I think the motivator to get it published is people need what's in this book. If you, I don't know if anybody can feel the joy that I'm bringing here, but I like there is joy. I want people to have this kind of joy. And the reason I have it is if you manage your career a certain way, you will always, always have work. And I I say that sincerely. I don't care what the market does. You will always have work. And I want to teach that formula to other people because 
it works. And that's what's in that book. Well, there you go, people. So we have to get on her. Ask, I know. Put that Guilt book is out. a motivator. And and the thing you forget is just think of all the books you could sell after after your show. I know. You'd dude. be like sitting there going, hey, hey, or, you know, it could, it could be a pamphlet of 10 pages. You could sell for 10 bucks and just sign it. So you know, anyway. So, okay, Teresa. Now, how can people get in touch with you if they want to, one, just want to pick your brain, want to get you to coach, want to bring you in to speak about HR, comedy, if they want you to do comedy. Uh, how can people get in touch with you? All right. So I got a bunch of web pages and all the contact info's out there. So highfiveperformance.com for my day my day job, Teresa HK Comedy for uh, my comedy job, and meettheauthorpc.com is for the Meet the Author group. So all three of those sites have contact information. Uh, I would love to hear from you. Even if you just want to comment on our conversation, I would love to hear from you. So, people, she's also on LinkedIn, which uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Steve Cooper. Um, email me at thecooptank at yahoo.com. Also, if you want to be interviewed for your social for your social media, everyone's doing social media stuff. Well, I'm someone who, my other website, coopertalk.net, I've interviewed over 900 celebrities. So I can actually give you a professional interview, and you can have a 15-minute chunk. You can tell me what you want me to ask, or we can just ad-lib it like I do with this interview because I don't prepare anything. And so if you're interested, hit me up on that. And if you have a podcast or, or a cable TV show and you want to get advised, as Teresa said, I can advise you on that. So I want to thank you for listening. Look up Teresa. Every once in a while, if you see she's performing in the area, go see her comedy. And thank you so much, and thank you to Towncast Studios. Check them out at towncaststudios.com. I'm Steve Cooper. Have a great day. 